It's not a nice thing to think about. But suppose the world was going to end tomorrow. Would we feel ready enough to be able to face something like that? What kind of resources might we possibly have that we could draw upon or lean upon in order to enable us to feel able to face something impossibly difficult. There might be a sense that only somebody with extraordinary qualities or some kind of extraordinary attainment could even start to imagine themselves possibly capable of getting through confronting an ordeal like that. We might be led to suppose that it could only be some sort of spiritual adept, some kind of highly spiritually evolved person who finds themselves able to stand face to face with something that by its very nature is unbearable. And suppose we happen to be a person who has practiced some sort of spiritual system and had the fortune to arrive at spiritual insights and experiences. These can offer a great deal of consolation and they can dramatically change the way that we relate to our own suffering. This might even be to an extent where we wonder how it was that we used to be able to cope without the resources that our practice and our experience may have endowed us with. However, whether that's the case or whether it's not, I don't think we have to look very far before we come across examples that might rightfully cause us to question whether spiritual attainment is any kind of solution to the problem of having to face unbearable adversity. I'm thinking of organisations such as MSF, Médecins Sans Frontières, or Doctors Without Borders as it's also known. These are people, trained medics, who voluntarily travel to war zones or disaster areas to give medical treatment to ill or injured people for free, often putting their own lives at risk in their endeavours to do so. The people who do this work are not necessarily, but as likely as not, people with no spiritual or religious motivation 
they may even have a very dogmatically materialist view of the world and have no interest or any need whatsoever for some kind of consolation that rests in any kind of reality beyond the one that mainstream scientific materialism presents to us. Here are people confronting the very worst that the world can throw at them, meeting it with a determination and heroism that would seem to have nothing to do with transcending material reality, but everything to do with just trying to be the best that we can as an ordinary human being. What if the reason that it's not only spiritual adepts who can face the unbearable is that everybody, every human being is, in a sense, a spiritual adept. What we shall be exploring today is the archetype of the hanged man. This is an archetype that precisely puts us in connection with that dimension of ourselves that is, by necessity, a spiritual adept. The most striking characteristic of the hanged man is that he's suspended, he's hanging upside down. Contrary to what we might expect, rather than his face expressing acute suffering at his predicament, instead he looks strangely peaceful and calm. What is this state that this figure seems to be in? What does it mean to be, as it were, upside down? Ordinarily, we take comfort in being the right way up, in having our feet on the earth, in being grounded. In the predicament of the hanged man, all of this is reversed, and yet he's calm, he's peaceful. So in what is he finding his repose if it's not in being grounded, if it's not in having his feet on the earth? A contemporary line of thinking that perhaps leads to an answer to this question is the notion of evidence-based practices. In the fields of medicine in particular, but also psychotherapy, the notion has increasingly taken hold that practitioners in this field should be employing methods, techniques, whose efficacy is backed up by scientific evidence. And this 
drive to ground what is done and what is practiced in empirical evidence has spread to all sorts of fields of human endeavor, such as business management, law, education, and public policy. For the most part, it seems a good and useful approach to be taking. How many of us would want to be on the receiving end of medical interventions that didn't have a scientific evidence base for them? But could there be a danger in the assumption that the only form of grounding is a grounding in empirical evidence? These days, increasingly, perhaps it's more and more difficult to conceive of an alternative. But here is where maybe there's an opportunity for us to turn things upside down and yet, like the hanged man, find a state of perfect repose in that. Suppose we consider a question such as what is the empirical evidence for the benefits of loving your children? Well, I have no doubt that empirical evidence for that has been compiled down the years. I'm thinking, for instance, of the disastrous, tragic situation that arose in orphanages throughout Romania that came to a head in the 1980s due to the disastrous social policies enforced by the autocratic Ceausescu regime, finally brought to an end by a revolution in 1989. Studies of the children affected strongly suggested that depriving human beings of human attention in infancy and childhood is highly detrimental both physically and psychologically. But what happened in Romania to give rise to this evidence was not a scientific experiment, it was a national disaster. There is evidence, but was that evidence really needed? Do we need evidence that it's beneficial for children to be loved? I think it's the case that this does not need to be grounded in empirical evidence. It's something that we shouldn't need to look outside ourselves to discover. We only need to look inside. We know it's beneficial for children to be loved. Because that's the only right and proper thing to do. If 
there were any social scientist crazed enough to be seeking to replicate the conditions that prevailed in those Romanian orphanages at that time in order to do more detailed research, perhaps. Then, of course, rightly, there would be no chance of getting that proposal past their university's ethics committee. It's significant, of course, that although a lot of value may be placed on evidence, the ethics of collecting that evidence nevertheless take precedence. However, there's a mystery here. Practice can be grounded in evidence, and the collection of evidence can be grounded in ethics. But what can we say our ethics is grounded in? As we've seen, sometimes we may happen to have evidence to hand for ethical questions. But had there been ethical action in the first place, that evidence would never have arisen. Is it the case, then, that ethics itself is beyond evidence? When... We're acting purely from an inner sense of what we know is right. Then we're no longer standing upon solid empirical ground, perhaps. In a sense, now our feet are up in the air and we're suspended above the earth. Yet, nevertheless, in that inner certainty that knowledge of what's self-evidently right, there we find a steadfastness, a repose. In the tarot, the card, the hanged man, fairly consistently depicts a young man of a quite fair and refined appearance, tied by the ankle and hanging from a rope upside down. Sometimes he's suspended by the ankle from some kind of scaffold, but most commonly it's from a plank fixed between two tree trunks on either side with all their branches cut off. There seems to be some historical evidence that in 14th century Italy, being hanged by the ankle upside down was a method of execution meted out to traitors. And in some renditions of this card, the hanged man is sometimes holding bags of coin in each hand, presumably containing 30 pieces of silver linking him to the figure of Judas Iscariot, the betrayer of Christ. Yet, even in the versions of the card where this visual link is being made, 
Still, this figure, even though it's possibly Judas Iscariot, he still has that calm and beautific expression on his face, which is intriguing given that Judas is perhaps the most reviled figure in Christianity. A couple of other anomalies haunt the way this archetype has been depicted down the centuries. Sometimes the hanged man is not hanging at all. Instead, he's tied by his ankle to a stake that has been hammered into the ground. He's actually standing upright on the ground. But his feet appear at the top of the card. And so it's the viewer's perspective, our perspective on him, that is actually what's upside down. And sometimes, occasionally, we find another variation on this, which is the hanged man hanging upside down by his ankle from a plank in the usual way, yet appearing to us as if he were the right way up, because, again, the viewer's perspective has been flipped upside down. With his beautific expression, even though sometimes he is being linked with the very worst of human beings, and this spectacle of a punishment, although for this man he doesn't seem to be suffering at all, and all this playing around with the notion of being upside down, whether that applies to him or to us as the viewers of this figure. Whatever might be the case, there's certainly a strong sense that something somewhere is not the right way up. Overall then, this figure is a very mysterious and subtle archetype. It is a card of profound significance wrote Arthur Edward Waite, but all the significance is veiled. It has been called, falsely, a card of martyrdom, a card of prudence, a card of the great work, a card of duty. I will say, very simply, on my own part, that it expresses the relation in one of its aspects between the divine and the universe. Unfortunately, Wait doesn't seem to have gone into any more detail than that. But maybe we can start to draw together our own conclusions on what this archetype might have to show and teach us as we considered earlier, you don't have to be a spiritual adept to know what's right and true. You just have to be a human being. Because with being human comes an ethical sense 
that knowledge of what's right and what's wrong. Our everyday actions can have ideally a grounding in evidence and ethics, but our ethics, even though they're a common and everyday facet of our experience, it might seem they have no grounding in empirical reality and no need for one either. Just as a stone does not have its own motion, writes the anonymous author of Meditations on the Tarot, and can only be a moved object, so is the will of he who is found in the condition of the hanged man, deprived of its own movement, and can only be moved from above. What Anonymous seems to be getting at the root of there, with that analogy of the stone, is maybe the source and the nature of that beautific expression on the hanged man's face, his perfect repose. When we're connected with that sense of what's good and true, even though that has perhaps no basis in the empirical world, but comes from looking within and seems to be radiating from another place entirely, even though, in a sense, we find ourselves suspended between heaven and earth, the material world and the spiritual world. What this archetype shows us is that, counterintuitively, can be a good position, a positive and a fortuitous place to be. And, as Arthur Edward Waite might have been hinting in his comment that this archetype presents an aspect of the relationship between the divine and the universe, maybe the position of the hanged man suspended between earth and heaven upside down is, in some sense, where as human beings, we always are, by necessity, or perhaps where we're meant to be. In the book, Answer to Job, Carl Jung's profound and deeply radical commentary on the biblical book of Job, Jung makes the startling argument that the reason why the actions of God or Yahweh in the book of Job appear so amoral and cruel is that, in truth, they really are. And it's Job, or in other words, potentially, human beings in general, that are morally superior to Yahweh. Jung suggests that 
the basic doctrines of Christianity are a kind of logical corollary to the book of Job. In order for the Christ to appear in the world, the epitome of moral perfection, God has to take the form of a human being. Because it's only by taking a human form that God can experience and manifest morality. If all of this sounds a bit theological and far removed from the everyday world, it's maybe worth reflecting how the argument that Jung makes is a proposed solution to a question we hear being asked constantly. How can there be such thing as God or the divine given that the world is such a difficult and cruel place? Or if there is a God, surely whatever that is must be something wrong or maybe even evil. What Jung is suggesting, and of course it's a proposition that's not entirely free of problems and implications of its own, is that fortunately or unfortunately, depending on your perspective, morality, kindness, compassion, in their everyday manifestations, simply are not part of what human beings can apprehend as the divine. In Jung's view, it seems, we live in a universe in which the divine has, in a sense, outsourced morality. Kindness, compassion, and knowing and doing the right thing is the speciality of human beings, not of God. This is why we don't have to be spiritual adepts to be capable of confronting and responding to the very worst that the world can throw at us. We don't have to know or experience God in order to arrive at what's good and right because it's not the nature of God that shows us that. Instead, that's revealed to us by our own nature as human beings by turning inwards and looking within ourselves. The archetype of the hanged man offers us profound and useful teachings. Maybe we're confronting the consequences of our own actions, or maybe suffering comes through no fault of our own. 
but the ground has vanished beneath our feet and we can no longer seek solace by looking up to heaven. Instead, our head can barely rise above the earth. Yet, the hangman shows us that in this position, nevertheless, some kind of calm, peace, poise, repose is nevertheless available. That's because he's prepared to fully inhabit this position in which he finds himself. He knows that as human beings we can find support in what's right and true because it's our natural habitat to be suspended between heaven and earth upside down. By recognising that fully participating and entering into it, from the beautific expression on his face, we can see that through this realisation, for him, everything is actually